There's no mention of people with learning difficulties in the Bible. Basically, learning difficulties never existed as a category or diagnosis of person, a person's needs. That only appeared, actually, that phrase, I think, in the mid-1980s. But, of course, there were people with learning difficulties and many forms of mental illness in biblical times. But in the ancient world, these were seen as some form of a curse or a sign of demonic possession from which people needed to be delivered. People who have a literalist interpretation of the Bible and of religion still sometimes get quite close to that kind of ignorance. For example, take the time when I saw a young man with a learning disability being prayed over in a church that I used to visit as a preacher long ago. I wasn't as enlightened then as I am today, and God knows I've got a long way to go, but I knew instinctively that it was very, very wrong that four so-called elders of the church were trying to cast evil spirits out of this young man. And they would have continued had I not been deeply moved to intervene, telling them that the young man was a beloved child of God who was perfectly fine and needed no demons casting out. It's extraordinary, isn't it, how people become so disturbed by something they don't understand. How people get disturbed by someone shouting out or behaving in what they see as an antisocial way because that's how these people communicate. Misguided religious folk uh, may see this as a sign of demonic presence still, but even ordinary non-religious people may react very badly to it as well. Gina Norman uh, may, can tell you some horror stories uh, about those sort of responses to their beautiful daughter, uh, which is going to change in a moment. Uh, their beautiful daughter, Victoria, whose picture is also at the front here. Uh, when they were in restaurants and other public places when, when she was young, she died, how many years ago is it now? Five years, I thought it was five years ago. Uh, she died and I was blessed to take her funeral in this place and blessed also by meeting this lovely family and them becoming part of my life, of all of our life here. Uh, on Tuesday, she would have been 48. It's also very sad that health professionals, such as the ones who spoke in the film, are still actually surprisingly uninformed about something like this, something so important. The number of people with learning dis disabilities who die each year unnecessarily. If uh, you'd like to do something about that, then uh, this thing will work in a moment. 1,200 people is what we learned in that. People die unnecessarily every year. And uh, my clicker's gone completely bonkers. So uh, if you want to do something about it, there's this petition. Um, it'll be on the, the screen later as well, you can find it, where you can sign this petition to the government insisting that uh, autism uh, and learning disability training be made mandatory in the health service. Paula McGowan, who created this petition, she writes this, she says, my son Oliver was only 18 when he died in hospital on the 11th of November 2016. I believe his death could have been prevented if his doctors and nurses had received mandatory training. 
He had autism and a mild learning disability, and they weren't trained to understand how to make reasonable adjustments for him. Jean says, uh, all through Victoria's life, we had to fight hard to get her services, let alone equality in hospitals. The biggest barrier, she says, with staff is their attitude toward people with learning difficulties. Uh, but this can be overcome by training. Perhaps uh, the so-called Gerizine demoniac in the gospel reading that we heard had some kind of learning disability which no one knew how to deal with. Perhaps, I don't know. He certainly had some form of mental disorder. So he was abandoned in a story which is laden with symbolism. It's a story that may be rooted in some actual event and yet it has very strong, what I would see as parabolic elements that suggests layers of interpretation, the whole pig-swine dimension and so on. We can't talk, go into it right now. But it's, it's, it's got an awful lot of symbolism woven into it. Uh, but the heart of the story is of a man needing care. A man needing care, devoid of love and living alone. Forced to live alone in a graveyard. Now, I don't believe in demons. You know, not as actual evil creatures ontological personalities, uh, though I do believe in the demonic, by which I mean malevolent forces in our world that are greater than the sum of people behaving in evil ways. All forms of bigotry can become, in this sense, demonic when they become an intimidating or coercive force in a community or in a society. In New Testament times, people with mental illness were ostracized and banished from the community, demonized, literally. As I say, it sometimes isn't so different today, for despite the fact that we know how more than a third of us will suffer from it in some form at some point in our lives, mental illness remains basically an embarrassment, a stigma that often brings shame on members of a person's family as well as on the person themselves. What the narrative in the gospel omits to tell us is that the other side of the lake where Gerizza is located was Gentile country in the north of modern-day Jordan where there are now Syrian refugee camps. It wasn't somewhere that the Jews went, not at all. It was kind of enemy territory, really. The man among the graves would certainly be a Gentile, a religious and cultural alien to the Jews. But Jesus crossed the lake, a metaphorical as well as physical border. He crossed the lake to bring the man good news and healing. Bearing in mind that Luke's readers were we understand predominantly Gentiles themselves, the story represents a powerful affirmation that Christ's gospel, Christ's good news, includes the Gentiles as well as the Jews. It offered the prototype of the church's mission to the Gentile world. It also speaks to the grotesque ignorance that exists in our world where people who don't fit in for whatever reason are frequently marginalised and ostracized in all kinds of ways. To live with prejudice in our hearts is basically subhuman. It's less than human. And a society that discriminates against people because of race 
or ethnicity or color or religion or the lack of it or disability or any illness of mind or body or because of gender or sexual orientation or religious or political persuasion um, is a society that is behaving in a subhuman fashion. In his book, Carpe Jugulum, Terry Pratchett has a character defined sin like this. He says, sin, young man, is what you treat people like when you treat people like things. Sin, young man, is when you treat people like things. I think that as a society, as well as individuals, we sometimes manifest something that I would call people blindness, an inability or a refusal to truly recognize and encounter certain people as fellow human beings by treating them as objects or things. And I doubt that any of us is completely free from that in some shape or form. What I really love about the story of the Gerasene man is the question Jesus asked him. Do you know what the question is that Jesus asked him? What is your name? What is your name? The man couldn't remember when someone last asked him that question. No one was interested. He was just that crazy guy who lived in the graveyard. The real healing that Jesus brought lay, I think, in this question, which opposed and revised everything about the way that man had been treated or even probably how he could sense himself and experience himself. What is your name? It's a radical question in certain contexts. Mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, the man had forgotten who he was. And no one treated him as a fellow human who just happened to have an illness or a disability. The gospel of Christ has social, communal, and political implications. But at its core, it's about self-realization. It's about affirming the sheer and total value of each person before God. I have called you by name, Isaiah says. I have called you by name. You are mine. The second story from Luke 8 similarly shows Jesus disrupting prejudice in his treatment of the woman who had suffered from hemorrhages. It says in the old Bible, she had an issue of blood, uh, some kind of, of gynecological disorder. And she'd had this, we're told, for 12 years. According to ancient Hebrew law, she was unclean. No one could touch her without also becoming unclean. Imagine that. I mean, according to the law, having contact with a woman who's just having a normal period. She's unclean during that period, and to touch her is to make you unclean too. I mean, this is the sort of world of those times. But imagine being an untouchable person for 12 years. I love Jesus for many reasons, but none greater than for this story, for this encounter with this woman. No reprimand, no outrage at her audacity in furtively touching him, making him unclean in the eyes of those around as she came hoping to be healed. Jesus brought her into the dreaded public eye that she had tried to escape for these years for one reason alone, to praise and commend her faith. Daughter, he said, daughter. That's a word of affection. It's like young lady, like a father speaking to a daughter. Daughter, 
The affectionate designation and tone of his voice brought healing in itself. Daughter, your faith has made you whole. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Not only does he address this woman with warmth and affection, he also affirms and empowers her. Your faith has made you. I didn't do it. You did it. You healed yourself by what you did, by being brave and courageous and going against everything you were supposed to do. Today, we will baptize a beautiful little girl called Bryce and embrace her as a beloved child of God, bathed in grace. In gospel times, children had little or no status in society, just like their mothers, like women in general. Children didn't have any particular status, especially little girls. They were chattels uh, of a patriarchal world, which is why it was remarkable that Jesus famously welcomed them and even said that unless we become like children, we cannot comprehend, let alone enter, the kingdom of God. In the Eucharist, celebrating communion, I often use a Eucharistic prayer in which we affirm that Jesus welcomes the little and the least. I love that turn of phrase. I love saying it, the little and the least. Those who are marginalized, discriminated against, used and abused, or simply not seen, overlooked in society. The Hindu greeting, namaste, is one of infinite depth and significance, meaning the God in me salutes the God in you. Here we have a glorious antidote, don't we? A glorious antidote to objectification. Something infinite, immortal, mysterious, loving and alive abides in me. And it is from this light that I bow toward that which is infinite, immortal, mysterious, loving and alive in you. What if this were the baseline in our assumptions about other people, about children and other vulnerable members of society? The baseline of how we treat people with different skin colour to ourselves, a different gender identity, different sexual orientation, different faith, different outlook, whatever. What if namaste with a baseline in how we as a society treated people with learning disabilities? What if it was the basis of how our government was going about treating people with learning disabilities, but also all the other vulnerable people in our world? Jesus wasn't a Hindu, but everything I see of him in the Gospels convinces me that he was a namaste person recognizing the divinity in people, especially the little and the least in his world. So many of us carry a kind of unspoken assumption that something is quite wrong with us. I know that because I talk to people all the time who basically are troubled by this in some way or other, that we're damaged or guilty or unlovable in some way. Stepping into our divinity Acknowledging and accepting our fundamental nobility as human beings is the ultimate paradigm shift. We cannot go about abusing ourselves and others once we've recognised the divinity within ourselves and those around us. The baptism of infants, I think, has been blighted over the years by the notion of original sin. 
a child conceived and born in sin. I don't believe that, as you know. I don't think, actually, that the Bible teaches it. I believe in original grace, that Bryce, that every child is born in a state of grace, unconditionally loved and welcomed, graced into the world by God, and hopefully received in the same way by us too. Friends, we are not dysfunctional versions of what we should be, but rather we are work-in-progress versions of what we could be. Shall I say that again? We are not dysfunctional versions of what we should be, but rather we are work-in-progress versions of what we could be. Namaste. At the end of Learning Disability Week, I invite you to greet our fellow human beings, people with learning disabilities, recognizing the divinity in them by signing this petition. It's as simple as that, really. So, I say to you all, namaste.